Hey, welcome to the After Now podcast with Tim and George. Give us a listen. What do you have to lose? Because let's be honest, you've wasted time on sketchier stuff than this. Hey, Tim. Yes. I got a joke for you. Okay, go for it. So, husband calls his wife at work and asks, do you ever get a shooting pain across your body? Like someone's got a voodoo doll and uh, they're stabbing you with a needle? And a stunned wife is like, she's really concerned. She goes, she goes, no, no, why, honey? And the husband says, okay, how about now? <laughs> All right, wow. then. <laughs> um, so uh, so here we go. We're, we're, we're doing another podcast here. Um, and this one is on the, uh, the James Webb Telescope. Very exciting. Now, before you turn this thing off, this is really exciting. And, and you're going to think, oh, they're just nerds, whatever. Um, this is going to rewrite science books. I, I mean, that's how big a deal that this is. So um, just give it a listen. All right. Um, and, and, you know, we'll start with who the, who the telescope was named after. And um, was a NASA scientist, uh, Dr. Vincenzo Giovanni Del Vecchio who of course is known as the person who invented freeze-dried cappuccino. Now, Dr. Del Vecchio also met a tragic end in the now infamous zero gravity meatball incident, which I don't have to tell you about, just terrible. But being a true Paisan, he said one of his last words were, Man cannot travel the stars with crappy food. So he gave his life doing what he loves, and they named the James Webb Telescope after him. Wow. I first want to apologize to everyone for the joke at the beginning of the show. <laughs> I thought that was a good one. That's one of my better ones, my cleaner ones. Yeah. And... um yeah, James Webb. That's that's a that's an interesting footnote in history. I wish it were true. <laughs> well, uh, Doctor Del Vecchio was a true American hero. Yeah, <clears throat> James Webb uh, was actually the second appointed administrator to NASA, and he was installed by John F. Kennedy. So you were close. I. <laughs> I got to check my sources. We'll do some fact checking. Okay. <laughs> That's good stuff. Uh, <clears throat> um, all right. In, in all seriousness, though, um, this telescope is a huge deal. Um, yeah. It, it was like 10 years in the making. Um, it's not just an American um venture 
Uh, it has various European countries involved. Um, it, it truly is an international um, effort. Um, it's huge. Uh, if you go on the web, not the James Webb, but the interweb, uh, and, and look at pictures <laughs> of this thing, um, it, it's it's really beautiful. It's it's got like these giant hexa hexagonal uh, mirrors, um, and, and it's just a piece of incredible technology. Uh, one of the things that is so we'll get into the specifics of it, but it's got all these different kinds of cameras and sensors. So it can, it can detect all different kinds of light, the kind of light that's visible to the human eye, the kind of light that's not visible to the human eye. Um, and it's way, way far out there. So, you know, in terms of comparing it to things, uh, if you're into this kind of stuff, there's the Hubble telescope, which was a huge deal when it was launched. Um, when it first was launched, there were some technical issues with it. And so there were some space shuttle missions that were sent to kind of fix it and recalibrate it and change things. And um, they are not going to be able to do that with the Webb telescope. Right. Um, yep. and, and Tim, you know better than I do how far out it is and the Lagrange zone and all that. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, you've done your research, right? So I've done I've done some, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I uh, it, well, just so we know, Tim is is pretty deep in into telescopes and astronomy, and um, he's um, you got a pretty interesting home setup. Yeah, um, you know. Uh, I've been an amateur astronomer for about 20 years now. Um, and I've had small, medium, large telescopes, um, you know, and I've, and I've been doing this for a while, you know, and, uh, you know, I've also been following NASA. I've been following the space program, um, for a long time. Uh, you know, and, and James Webb is just an, another step. It's just another step in the, uh, the effort for us to learn what's out there. Um, but you're right, George, this is, this is a big deal and it's as big as it was. It's as big today as Hubble was back when it was launched. Um, James Webb, you know, um, it's, it's going to be able to peer farther and deeper into space. And as we'll discuss in the show, that also means, back in time um and we'll, we'll go into that as yeah because we, we that, that could be a mind melter right because right. if you if you think about it um it, it um it really will blow your mind uh, of of what this thing can do um and and the the sheer engineering of this thing so um can, can you kind of explain like how far out this telescope is from earth? Yeah, it's, it's it, it sits at what we call L2. So L2 is a Lagrange point or L means Lagrange point, which basically means uh, where, um, bodies 
a gra- where bodies exert gravity, meaning Earth and the and our Sun, um, there is a Lagrange point or a point in space where um, you can set a, uh, satellites or you can set objects up to orbit, and they're going to maintain a stable orbit. Um, they're going to be in an area that's relatively um, stable when you're talking about the dynamics of gravity orbits and how all that stuff works. I'm going to keep it very high level. Um, a Lagrange point is just a safe place to park a satellite and to control it. That's really what it boils down to. There are a couple Lagrange points. This was actually discovered um, hundreds of years ago by um, other astronomers that we're not going to go into on this uh, podcast right now. But uh, we can talk about that at a later time. We can talk that, talk about that in another podcast. Um, but it's important to note that Hubble sits in orbit. Relatively, you know, relatively speaking, it sits in the orbit of Earth, where our, you know, where the International Space Station is, where you know, weather satellites generally are. It sits cl- much closer to Earth than where the Lagrange point is. L two is a million miles away, so. You can imagine <laughs> if something goes wrong, um, it's not going to be easy to get out there. Uh, in fact, um, when NASA talks about servicing, there really is little discussion about servicing. It's either going to work or we're going to have a multi-billion dollar piece of equipment orbiting the planet that doesn't do very much, unfortunately. And they, uh, it was sent up um i believe it has at maximum 10 years of fuel 20 years 20 years okay 20 year uh, 20 year um duration for um uh, its mission and, and the reason it needs fuel is to position it to look at what we want to look at um now one of the cool things about this is because of all these sensors and cameras. Um, think about when when you're outside um, and it's really sunny. It's hard to see things, so you would put uh, either a hat on, or you know, hold your coat up or whatever behind you to create shade. Yep. And, and so, um, if if this were just in orbit with the sun. Uh, you know, beating down on it, it wouldn't see anything. So what they had to do was create a shade, basically a sunshade. Mm-hmm. Um, that shade is the size of a tennis court, and it's made up of five very thin layers of basically mylar, like your mylar yep, that's all it is. balloons. Yep. Um, and those five layers, and, and each each layer is about the size of a human hair. Um, that's it. That's what that's what's protecting. And and the the difference in temperature. So the shade on the outside that's getting hit by the sun. I believe the temperature somewhere around three hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, where it's shady, it's something like. 
negative 200 degrees. I mean, there's like a 500 degree difference between the sun and the shade. And um, as you, as you, you know, noted, it does like a deep, and this has already happened, but it unfolds. It kind of does a origami. And so when they parked it at L2, uh, meaning that it, it was sent out to this Lagrange point and it was sent there to park, it would unfold and the shade would essentially face the sun. The optics or the actual telescope piece would face away from the sun and we get to look at really cool stuff in space, hopefully. And um, so, like I said, there are all these different agencies that help contribute to it and are part of this. And when, and that's why there's fuel involved to reposition the, the telescope. For example, one of the people that, that I saw an interview about, um, they were going to get 51 hours of total time through the life of the telescope right? Um, to, to view what they wanted to view. And some people are looking out as far as they could, as, as far as they can to get how far into the, in, into the universe they can see. Others are actually using it to, um, to see a, um, a, a solar system that hit, it, they think is close to ours. So they want to examine that. And, and others are looking at other planets within our own solar system to get a very, very detailed view of it. So there's a whole lot going on here. Um, a lot of science, a lot of science and a lot of math. Oh my God. A lot of math. <laughs> and all um, of it, it's going to be done in either, you know, it's going to be done in metrics. We're not going to do two different types of math here. It's only going to be one. <laughs> That's right. Um, and if anybody who's familiar with space and Mars knows, we, we want to keep it one type of math. Why is that? Because when you have one team working in metrics and another team not working in metrics, you tend to have rockets crashing the planets. Oh, is that really? <laughs> yeah. We don't, we don't talk about that. <laughs> so, yeah, you're, and, and you're correct when you said, you know, the mission duration is planned for 10 years but i kind of want to also throw out there that hubble is way beyond its life now there 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 were a lot of servicing miss missions to hubble upgrades to hubble but it's way beyond its operational point um we we expect that to happen with james webb we know that webb will will work will run um, well into the 15, 18, 20 year range. Now they're always going to shorten that publicly because if something goes wrong, you know, obviously right. that would be right. bad, but it, we're going to get more out of it than what's, you know, generally, you know, um, expressed by NASA. Yeah. So, um, here's, here's where the fun begins. Um, and this is this is kind of the mind melter, um, and, and it's um, <laughs> it takes some real creativity to get your your your, your mind around. Um, for those of you in states where um, certain herbs are are legal, uh, 
I don't know if that's going to help or hurt with this conversation. It's going to help. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, all right. Like I said, they're different cameras and different sensors. Right. Um, the, the ones that I guess are, are some of the more interesting are the infrared. Mm-hmm. Um, what the infrared, the stuff we will, can't see with our eyes. Right. But there's still a heat signature. Mm-hmm. So the theory being that with the Webb telescope, we may get close to going back and seeing the past to the point very close to or at the inception of when the universe was created. Mm-hmm. So here's where here's where my mind kind of goes. It's like, okay, well, light energy, I know speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. So anything that happens, that light's going to travel at that speed. So any light we're seeing on Earth now of a star came from that star at that speed, and that's what we're seeing. We're not seeing the actual state of the star today. So my thought is, well, if the light left, let's say there was a big bang and the light left, right after that event was done, the light is gone. But with infrared, the theory is we will still see that energy even after the light's no longer there. That's a good explanation. Thank you. Now, and I am totally sober right now. Just no. <laughs> co- completely free of any type of <laughs> altered altered uh, substances. Uh- <laughs> and and if we were to take James Webb and point it towards a closer star, let's say a star that's ten light years away. Well, it takes light ten yard ten years to get here, right? So when we look up at that star, that light is. 10 years old um when james webb looks at that with infrared or some of his other optics um it's going to get a much different picture of what that object is the characteristics of that object um maybe even um celestial objects around that object that may be influencing that planet, that star, whatever it is we're looking at. So it's deep science. There's a lot of good stuff there. Um, and it's uh, definitely the next step beyond Hubble. And so here's um, here's a fairly practical way to think about just visible light. Visible light from the sun takes about eight minutes to get to the earth so sunlight we're seeing is eight minutes old um and that's in our solar system (laughs) so um and you know that's why they measure things in light years and again get your head around that that's one year traveling at 186,000 miles per second i wish i could get my car to go that fast oh my god well that'd be cool isn't that an upgrade on a tesla no 
No. We just, yeah, it is, but it's really not. <laughs> he saves it for himself, right? Right. <laughs> um, and and so by looking back at all, looking back that far in time, um, it will give us so much information about how the universe was created, what's happened with the universe today and that's why i i, I said earlier it's going to rewrite science books yeah it, it I, I think it's it's just going to change our understanding of a lot of things it's all about capturing those photons so the more light we can bring in the more we can see the clearer the picture and that's really what it boils down to and that's why they've got these giant mirrors um and, and it's interesting because the mirrors are not the cameras what no. the mirrors do is the mirrors collect the light and um, condense all that light into one point so that the sensors can make sense of what's being picked up by the mirrors. Yeah, that, that's exactly correct. They're going to focus it in uh, on one point. And then depending on what science package they decide to use, um, they're going to be able to see infrared. They're going to be able to see whatever it is they want to see with whatever package they're using. Um, and the mirror is way larger than what's on Hubble. Um, you have to understand that this, this mirror is not only, not only is it in made in multiple segments, but it's got multiple actuators on it as well. So you, they could fine tune this and really dial in and to look at whatever it is they want to look at. And, and this type of exploration, um, you know, it's interesting because any kind of project, any type of adventure, any type of, of new um, of new exploration is always met with, oh, why are we spending the money on this? We could be spending the money on Earth and blah, blah, blah. This will give us an incredible understanding and ultimately that's what humans are yep. right we want to understand where did we come from why are we here where are our origins uh, you know where do we fit in this in this cosmic neighborhood <laughs> and and so um this is really exciting this is, no, and, it is. And, yeah. And, that, the, and, and the stuff we're going to learn from this will help for the next iteration of whatever the next telescope is. And they're already starting to talk about that. But, you know, this is a 21-foot diameter mirror. You know, this this is gold-covered. It's, it's a beryllium reflector. It's big. Um, it's about... You know, if, if I were to compare it to Hubble, it's about six times larger than Hubble. Wow. So that's And it's farther out. And it's farther out. Darker. Farther. It's uh it's it's gonna be exciting to see the first pictures back. And and one of the cool things uh, about it was this had to fit in a rocket. 
and that's what Tim was talking about unfolding and, and, you know, doing the origami thing because it had to fold to a point that it fit within a rocket. And then once it got to the Lagrange point, then it started to unfold, but it's, it really shows what engineering, what amazing engineering we can do at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been brutal. James Webb has probably been one of the most excruciating projects NASA's had in a long time. I mean, to give you a little history, the successor to Hubble started after Hubble went up. And through 96, through 2004, and countless delays, you know, we finally got a launch on Christmas of this year. And... You know, um, we're, we're just glad that it went up safely. We're glad that it got out to its Lagrange point and, and it unfolded. It It's like that one scene from Apollo 11 where they're, <laughs> you know, writing up, up on the chalkboard. You know, we're on step two or three of 500. <laughs> yeah. Whatever that, that scene was. There were so many steps to get to the point where we're at. And, you know, we're, we're essentially right now a month and a half, a month and 14 days into the, the mission. So there's a lot of fine-tuning and uh, a lot of uh, calibration for the telescope. Hopefully we'll see something quarter four, qu- late quarter three, towards the end of the year. So, Tim, um, and this is kind of dating this podcast, but um, there was a solar incident Um and it's of note because um, SpaceX launched, I believe, 46 satellites and was just getting them um, prepared to go into orbit. So they had, they had left the spacecraft, were getting ready to go into orbit. And uh, was it solar flares? Yeah. Solar uh, flares interfered. The, the, um, not the solar flares themselves, but obviously the solar radiation from the solar flares interfered. And it, it rendered 40 of the 46 inoperable, which is bad news. Um, and, and, and I would just wonder how would that affect the Webb telescope? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of spacecraft, the International Space Station, us, we're protected by the Earth's magnetic field. Um, when solar flares occur on the sun, um, a lot of that is deflected and redirected into the north and south pole of, of the, the planet. Um, that's why we have auroras at the north and south poles. It's that energy from solar flares and solar energy in general being driven into the north and south poles. Um, and that's a lot of energy. As you venture farther and farther away, you're less protected from solar radiation. This is a big concern when we do missions to Mars, when, we, when we're going to plan to have humans go to Mars. This is a very big concern. So we've been working on shielding and how to harden electronics against electromagnetic, electromagnetic interference. Um, James Webb is insulated generally pretty well from that kind of stuff. Um, not only does it have its electronics 
uh, in hardened. Um, but they can retask it as well if needed. Um, but it, you wouldn't really need to do that. It's 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 got it's, it's got pretty good shielding. There's no Scotty involved, but there's pretty good <laughs> there's pretty good shielding involved when we're talking about James Webb because it sits so far out. You know, it's going to be less protected. Yeah, yeah. But it, it just shows the um, the reliance of all this stuff, uh, all this stuff floating in space, and something like uh, solar flare, geomagnetic storm. Um, you know, throughout history, we've had some doozies that um, have hit, and the impact wasn't as um, identifiable because we weren't as dependent on electronics and the power grid. Right. Um, but there's stories of these geomagnetic storms and, and the auroras that, uh, that Tim's talking about is uh, they're commonly known as the Northern lights um, and at different part times of the year in different places, you can see them. Um, there were stories like uh, a couple hundred years ago, um, I believe just when, or not even in maybe your late 1800s, 1900s, when telegraphs were first out, uh, there's a story of a huge uh, uh, solar flare event where the Northern lights were seen pretty much around the world. And it caused a lot of fires within these telegraph batteries that they were using um and some telegraph operators had even reported that they could send messages um and the only way they could do it is if they took the batteries out because there was so much electricity going through the wires just coming through the air yeah so um if that were to happen today uh, that would be absolutely devastating well we've had We've had power grid outages due to solar issues. Um, I said due to. Due <laughs> to. Um, solar flares. And, you know, we, we have um, a lot of equipment, a lot of payload in orbit that, you know... Um, We've learned over time how to insulate against that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, the sun does have its uh, solar maximum and solar minimum uh, cycles. Uh, we know when those occur. And we can kind of move things around to deal with that. Um, but not always. Sometimes things get in the way and you, you just got to hope for the best. The yeah. things that we don't mess around with is I, uh, you know, International Space Station. There's human, what they call, you know, the, the astronauts on board there. You never want to put a human life in, in peril, and uh, so there's there's a lot of safeguards to kind of deal with that kind of stuff. Yeah. So so back to the telescope, <clears throat> in terms of how they can see back, and we we talked about the infrared piece. Um, going back. It's just still incredible. And I think that they still don't know what they're going to find when they look back that far. Right. Um, and and with this, they might even see the um, the creation of universes. Uh, and, 
and major yeah. destruction of universes. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know, there like we like we had talked about there there are a lot of science packages on it. So, not to go too geeky, right? But they've got uh, uh, a near infrared camera, uh, which is called NearCam. They got NearSpec, which is near infrared spec- uh, spectrograph. Um, what a spectrograph does is it basically looks at the a basic concept of a spectrograph would be, you know, colors in the sky, colors. Uh, that we can pull out of an image, blue may may mean oxygen, or red may mean sulfur, you know. So when we look at different types of colors, we can identify different types of um, minerals or different types of chemical makeup of distant bodies, planets, stars, moons, those types of things. So that's what a spectrograph is generally going to do for you. Um Mid infrared instrument, another instrument that looks at different wavelengths. Um, and and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Tim, but the reason that's important so the the folks that are looking at other uh other galaxies or what have you, um, you know, one of the one of the things a lot of people have talked about is finding that a planet that's similar to Earth. In, in what they call the Goldilocks zone mm-hmm. that um, is conducive to life mm-hmm. with this instrumentation. Like you said, the spectrograph, we would be able to see what the atmosphere is made up of with these instruments for the first time. And, yeah. and that's yeah. really exciting. It is um, because we can, we can do a little bit of, uh, you know, we can, we can we can put a little bit more scrutiny on what we're looking at and kind of identify the chemical makeup of a distant object, um, and that's important. We 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 haven't been able to get down to that type of detail in the past, and um, it sheds light, and uh, you know, it just opens the doors to what we can look at and you know, kind of understand out there. And it's so again, here's another thing that blow one's mind. Um, depending on how far away this, this plant, let's say this planet is, that's conducive to life. Um, and, and let's say we're looking at it through light that's uh, 5 million years ago. Uh, there's every thought that if it's similar to us, life may have evolved uh life may have have developed and perhaps that life has developed to a point where they're equal or ahead of us um and it's really interesting because there's a a school of thought that says um hold on and we got fido who wants to yeah. chime in about all this because he's excited <laughs> yeah, as he's, well yeah, he's a denier. Uh, he's <laughs> always a critic. I swear to God. Um, but so there, there's interesting um, theories that civilizations like ours have happened billions of times, and one reason or another, they die out. 
uh, either there's a cosmic event, you know, a meteor or something, or, or something happens to their sun, or um, a, a species gets technology that they can't handle. Um, it's a theory that I'm hearing more and more about lately. Mm-hmm. And, and one that's even been um, talked about on the earth as well, that um, a lot of the fossils we see happened because of a cosmic event. And that's where a lot of legends, let's say of Atlantis or like how the pyramids were built or whatever, that something happened. And then we got set back and had to get to this point again. So um, if this telescope can show us a planet with life, be careful that life that life millions of years old <laughs> yep. yeah right and you got to be careful like you said be careful because yep you're you opening don't. that box yeah yeah you know you know really we always want to find the little aliens but at the end of the day james webb is really made to expand our knowledge of science um and if we can find little green aliens on the way, that's awesome. That's yeah. my take on it. Yeah. And, it, and it, again, it's this is yet another Lego that's part of the overall structure of our understanding. Right. And just like Hubble, you know, 50 years from now, you know, people are going to go, oh, wasn't Hubble adorable? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 on my phone or headset or whatever, I can see more than Hubble did. Yeah. But you know what? You needed Hubble to get there in order right. to get to that next step. It was and, the stepping stone. Absolutely. And and Webb is a, I, I, I think it's a significant step forward and, and a worthy successor to Hubble. Oh, yeah. I mean, to expand the conversation, you know, we've gone from the Gemini program, Gemini program, to the Apollo program, to the shuttle program, to no program. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. And those were the dark years. I mean, there were other dark years, but that was pretty dark. Relying yeah. on um, the Russians to get into orbit for... X amount of years. Um, and, and you know, Soyuz is an amazing piece of engineering. It really is. It's, you know, we, we joke about it, but, I mean, Soyuz has a great record. And as does... Really? Yeah, I mean, uh, they, they, they've got solid technology in Russia. And it's built off pretty rock-solid, you know, older, but rock-solid technology. And then, of course, SpaceX, right? And yeah, and the evolution of the commercial market of space. Um, you know, we we may be looking at the last. I don't know if this is true, but we may be looking at the last real big um, government-funded telescope project. Um, there may be now private money going into this. Because 
there's private money going into everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's you got you got to be able to make money at it. People want the return on investment, all that stuff. But and that's you know that's kind of scary. Uh, you it know, is it, it, because then there's the profit motive, and, and um, I I think it would I would like to see where even if it's private companies that are building this and deploying it or what have you. I would like to, I, I think that this is something governments should stay in mm-hmm. for the pure academic uh, knowledge gathering endeavor of it. Because yeah, once I... it becomes for profit, then it's like, oh, well, let's uh, see if we can mine something out of here. Let, you know, it, it becomes a little bit more nefarious. Yeah, it does. I agree with that, but this is the first year that, you know, private space spend exceeds, you know, um, state nations. Hmm. And, you know, I I hate to say this, but innovation seems to, I'm not taking anything away from the Apollo program. No, 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 no. But, you know, they didn't, they didn't land rockets though. No, they got they got oh. people to they got people to the moon, and that was impressive and and wow. But you know, in a small amount of time, we're landing rockets. Um, you know, we're private agencies are putting rovers on the moon. Um, private industry is putting satellites into orbit, and if I read correctly, there are three or four companies that are planning to clean or wanting to commercialize the cleaning of. Um, low orbit, so it'll be safe for other people to put newer payload into orbit, which is fantastic. That's great. So you're you're seeing the open market take over, and uh, you know I I love the fact of everything that NASA's done. I mean, it's been a mm-hmm. great story, and you know those guys are my heroes. But you know I. I want to see it happen faster before I leave this blue earth. You know, I want to, I want to, I want a jetpack. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, you, you bring up a really interesting point because um, when they were first talking about um, the private, the SpaceX's um, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and, and the other endeavors that are reusing rockets, um, they were saying that's one of the reasons that, well, they think one of the reasons like NASA stopped doing things because it got so incredibly expensive. And, yeah. and when asked about it, um, you know, Elon Musk, I, I remember an interview years ago where he was saying, well, it's because they were a government agency, right? No one thought about making it actually efficient and being able to reuse things. Right. So, they just had stuff either burn up in the atmosphere or fall into the ocean and not be used again. It was a one-time thing, but when a company is paying for it, they're like, we can't be that wasteful. And it was strictly because that wasn't a requirement. (laughs) And yeah. And so, and so I think that really is where the benefit of having 
government and private industry work together mm-hmm. um, and, you know, contract it out, if you will. Right. And, and so um, that efficiency is going to be really, really beneficial um, because it's it just wasn't a thought. Hey, why don't we reuse this? Yeah. You know, with, with SpaceX and, and Blue Origin, you know, they took the different approach. You know, let's let's bring low cost, low orbit, um, the ability to bring payload. You know, we need to make money on this. We need to commercialize this. Um, it, it made a lot of sense on paper, but everyone pretty much wrote them off and basically said, you know, good luck. This is this is uh, Candyland. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and then it happened. You know? Yeah, yeah, and, and and the talk is to have a colony on Mars. He does, you know. Elon does. Um, I know that Jeff Bezos gets kind of uh, you know the, the the lesser of the 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 reputation that he should have um, because you know his company's smaller and you know he's he's putting people in orbit though. You can't take that away from him and. No. He's got the technology separate of, you know, SpaceX as well. So it's it's interesting to see two people who have visions take a different approach to the same goal. And whenever that happens, you know, it's called some innovation. People think, some people think it's it's wasteful or whatever. But when it, that is innovation, but the innovation. And, and, you know, people have said, oh, the egos and this, that and the other thing. Whenever there's rivalry, whenever there's competition, it always brings out the best. Absolutely. And, and, and it accelerates development. So if SpaceX was the only one doing things, would they, would they feel the urgency to get it done? And there's always, there's always peril when you're rushing things, but it also puts people at the top of their game. Right. It does. You know? And and to be fair, because there will be people who listen to this podcast, we, we are aware that there are other companies other than Blue, Blue Origin and SpaceX that are private. You know, Boeing's out there, United Space Alliance. There, there's a lot of different ones. And we're not taking anything away from those companies at all. They all have their attributes that are amazing. Um, well, if, 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 if I could just clarify... Yeah. Um, you knew about that. I'm learning about it with the listeners. So got it. Okay. Thank you. Just I, I don't want to give myself too much credit here. No, no. But but <laughs> the and the, the the point is is that there's a lot of companies out there doing a lot of great things and yeah. and and you know SpaceX though is getting a lot of the fanfare because of who runs it, the people involved, the sure. fact that it came. Out of Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and they, like you said, George, this reinforces exactly what you said. They had a different spin. The vision was different. It took a different set of people to do what they did. And I, I, I'm probably the vast minority of people who watched the rocket land and literally jumped up and down for excitement, like a schoolboy giddy. 
because it's amazing. It's amazing. It, it, it is. It is like uh, you're looking at it, saying, "You know what? That would be impressive with a toy, with right. something the size of a toy, a model, a model." To have it with something just ginormous is it's crazy it, it's it, it is it's so exciting yeah um, and usually usually in aerospace and engineering um what's generally known is is that what works in the small scale doesn't always equate to what will work in no. full scale <laughs> no not at all there, there's gravity and forces and you know just things at play that that make that math really hard and yeah, you know, the fact that they did it, that was amazing. And we're beyond that now. But I'll tell you what, every time a rocket lands, I'm still like, wow, that's amazing to me. I still can't believe that's happening. Well, and, and here's here's another thought. In terms of the development of rockets, rockets were really first used towards the end of the Second World War, which was like 77 years ago yeah so within 77 years and really all that was was rocket propulsion and they just kind of pointed it and hoped it landed somewhere um without any kind of sophistication at all then late 60s we were able to get people on top of this really dangerous rocket and shoot them out into space um and and now we're reusing them and they're safer. Yeah. You know, not to say that it's safe. No, they're safer. No. Right. Yeah. I mean, but... the commercialization, the reuse of <laughs> the infrastructure, this brings the price down. When you bring the price down, it's more obtainable for companies other than Axum satellite radio <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, um, government agencies to put weather satellites or whatnot. Now you've got private industry entering the space race, which isn't a race anymore. The race is over. Yeah. And now it's the new race is how do you monetize the final frontier? Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, as, as people, want more and more um everything becomes mundane <laughs> so um between needing more bandwidth more connectivity um programming everything needs to be mobile all that is going to be um enabled through satellites and in different appliances up up in space. Yeah, I mean, the benefits already are being realized, you know. Um, Starlink. I mean, I, I know it's another Elon company, but he couldn't do it without landing rockets. I mean, it wouldn't be cost-effective for him. So... And, 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 and it just, if I could just throw out there, because we do talk about, about Elon Musk a lot, and, and I yeah. hope we get him on this show at one point. Um, but the reason we talk about them is for um, 
for people that really like technology, if if you've ever heard an interview with him, the guy just thinks a different way. And it is so much fun to just hear him problem solve. Yeah, it's it's almost like he's not part of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, and and, it, and it's it, the creativity, and you know, it's like um, I heard him talking about something. I think it was the boring company that he has about having these underground tunnels and and how to route things, and it and he talks about it in in detail, but in a way you can understand. And the perspective, the way he turned the problem on an axis, right, and just when he did that, it, the answer became really clear, but it's like, I would not have thought of that. And until he repositioned the problem, then it made perfect sense. It's like, Oh my God. And, and, and you just know that when you're hearing this, um, this is someone that looks at things in a completely different way. It's so fun. And so, yeah, I, I'll admit I'm kind of a fanboy. <laughs> I am. Yeah, it's hard not to be. Um, when when you're talking about him a lot, and we're not we're not going to go too deep on this, but but when we're talking about him a lot, you know, the person that you kind of or the people who talk about Elon a lot, they they really compare him to Steve Jobs um, in many circles. Um, not not because. Uh, their compliments, their compliments are are equal, but it's because of the way they think. You know, yeah. when when uh, Steve Jobs introduced the iPad, you know, everyone was like, "Well, where's the stylus?" Well, and he, you know, he looks at his hands and he's like, "Well, these fingers are the stylus." You know, and no one ever knew that they needed an iPad. No one ever knew that they needed an iPod. Um. You know, why do we need a smartphone? So these these concepts were foreign to us, but it made sense to us. And and that drives an industry and it drives demand. And whether it's rockets that land or iPads that compute, you know, it's still a game changer. Yeah, yeah. And it's just fun for someone that's so creative. You yeah. know, and gets shit done. <laughs> he does. He does. And it doesn't you, just stay in the drawing board. No. And it's funny that you mentioned that because the two people also share other traits of affecting multiple industries. You know, Elon, we've got space, we've got automotive, we've got AI and robotics now. But Steve didn't make his money at Apple. He made money at Apple, but he didn't make his fortune at Apple. He he, you know, made it at Pixar. Yeah. Uh, people forget yeah. a lot of times he 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 made Pixar with you know other people that were brought in, but he he had that vision. Um, and you know, one of these days we'll talk about the history. Um, it will be a, one of our shows, but you know, th- this guy affected the movie industry. The, the computing industry, for sure. He invented the computing industry, private computer industry, um, you know, entertainment, but TV entertainment, and music. 
how music is yeah. licensed and consumed. So, same thing. The parallels are interesting. Yes, yes, they are. Yeah, and and that is a show. It would be fun to, because the the impact. Um, it's so easy to forget, or or just not realize. You know how a single individual affects the way you live every day now. Right, right. Which is kind of and cool. and the science that's being pulled out of what SpaceX is doing we can't even calculate that right now. It's like, think of all of the microprocessor technology and just deep engineering science that came out of the Apollo program. You know, we realized that and those accomplishments and the findings of that science over 10, 20, perhaps even 30 years we haven't even begun to feel the effects of what, you know, SpaceX is doing. You know, when when they launch people into orbit now, um, a lot of that is done under automation. Um, yeah. You know, and it's all autopilot. It's all controlled by the computer for the most part. Um, very little bit of a human interaction. And so when you look inside of a capsule... It's all shiny. It's all pretty. It's got touchscreens. No physical buttons. There are some physical buttons. But, you know, it's one of those things where um, the human condition's changed. Yeah. And, you know, we've moved forward. Yeah, and realizing that the um, the first Apollo uh, capsule that, that took people to the moon had way less computing power than what's in your pocket it right now oh yeah (laughs) that computer although an accomplishment for its time um you know it it very very little computing power power and and speaking of um so if if you're at all interested about space stuff or whatever um a a movie i highly recommend it's kind of it's kind of talking about what we are is uh called hidden figures um great movie about um about the launch that uh that that got the guys to the moon um and the mathematicians um most notably uh katherine johnson they just named a building after her at nasa um deservedly absolutely and um uh african-american woman that was uh, responsible for hand calculations for a um for the key parts of the apollo mission yep. uh they were they were just getting mainframes online great movie uh very well done uh shows um a- again just heroes that that nobody knew about for a very very long time um and um, you know the, the the universal language of math, right? It, math doesn't lie. Math does so, not lie. So, highly recommend that that movie. Yeah, that was a good movie. Um, I enjoyed that. So, um, so again, what what we're gonna learn from from uh, from the James Webb Telescope? Kind of unknown. Um, 
and, and it'll be interesting uh the stuff that is learned from it um is some of it going to be too scary to publish i don't know yeah i mean but we're going to be able to dot the i's and cross the t's on a lot of stuff that hubble started um yes. and i think that's important and like most of our podcasts we're not we're not going to go into the nitty-gritty detail um this is meant to be a high level examination of whatever it is we're talking about but you know maybe at some point once we see the science and you know we get into what we're actually able to do with it we can do a follow-up episode yeah and, and honestly this is stuff that we're interested in and we hope right maybe some of these things will pique your interest um, and you go on the Google machine or whatever. And, and certainly uh, you can do more research and um, you know, who knows at some point um, maybe they're going to allow uh, some, some streams from the James Webb telescope at some point, who knows? That'd be kind of cool. That would be kind of cool. I'm uh, actually surprised you brought that up. Why? Um, at CES, Sony announced a um, a collaboration, um, a satellite that's going to be put up in orbit where you can uh, get satellite time off of it. And, no um, way. Oh, yeah. And you use an app right from your desktop and uh, take pictures. <laughs> How cool is that? They actually had a model of the satellite there, and I was looking at it for about five, ten minutes because it looked like the real deal, um, meaning that it was machined in a way, it was built in a way that it wasn't a model. It was a oh, really? replica of probably what's going up. So it was too nice. Yeah, they wouldn't let me touch it. <laughs> Why am I not surprised that you tried? Um, because you know me pretty well. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and oh, okay. that's now my dogs are ex- are excited. That well, uh, you know, good. Mine's uh, mine yelled at me enough. Thought uh, thought I could be doing better, so hopefully I am now. Um, but. Uh, well, I, I hope this was informative. I, I I learned a lot. Oh yeah, I I'm always happy to sit down and talk about these things, and it's always fun for me because it's my hobby. Um, and uh, you know, touching on a lot of these things, like you said, this podcast is going to be dated pretty quickly. We're gonna we're gonna learn a lot of cool things in the next couple of weeks, months, and. Uh, you know, maybe we can do a follow-up and, you know, see where it takes us. Yeah. And, oh, and, and one other thing, just in terms of uh, Tim's hobby with this, um, don't know if it's public knowledge, but uh, what, and, and Tim, you've gone to these. Um, there's, uh, in order, just like the, the web telescope, where they put up their shield, right, to, to make sure that they're in darkness, um, they've got dark parks, for, right. teles- for telescopic viewing. Well, they do. Um, they've got 
and and you know we should probably put some resources um within our podcast or we should attach some links um when people are listening uh for those of them who goes to websites and whatnot uh we'll try to do that but yeah there are a lot of events across the country where you can go to um sky shows um if you want to go and visit observatory the lola observatory in um um flagstaff arizona um, is a beautiful facility to, to, to look at. They have, um, they're actually under a renovation right now. Um, but the entire city of Flagstaff is, uh, kind of set up for a dark sky. Um, is so it it's really? kind of cool to, to see stuff like that. And, and just so, uh, people know what we're talking about. There are, um, there are certain locations that are set up so that it's far away from any, um, ambient city lights or anything like that so that you get a much better view of the sky. Yep. Because darkness is your friend. Darkness, when you're looking through a telescope, darkness is your friend. As Simon and Garfunkel once sang. Who are they? Oh my god. Okay, uh, okay, okay. I'm okay, just for, kidding. I'm okay, just kidding. For, I love for, them. For, They're great. They're great. For, for, for our younger listeners... As disturbed once sang, uh, "Hello, darkness, my old friend." <laughs> yeah, great song. Yes, and that's a good version. They disturbed did a great version of that. So um, we're we're speaking of music. We're, yeah, we're thinking about well, having some musical guests on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, our 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 intro and outro song uh, is done uh, by a. Um, a band out of the uh, Kenosha, Milwaukee area. Love Milwaukee. Uh, yeah, but te- yeah, technically Kenosha, but the Milwaukee area. Um, uh, Betsy Aid and the well-known Strangers. Um, really fun band. They they uh, they play out a bit. Played Summerfest, um, and uh, the lead singer Betsy Aid. Uh, was actually uh, made it to the final 24 of The Voice, which is really cool. So, uh, yeah, we're going to get them on. We're going to get them on soon. Milwaukee Fest being one of the two big shows in the Midwest, Lollapalooza in Chicago, Milwaukee Fest in Milwaukee. Um, yes, yeah, so, yeah, Summerfest has been... Um, oh, sorry, Summerfest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that. Summer, COVID, COVID is, has kind of trimmed it down a little bit, but it's normally like a two-week just... They have everybody there. It's fun. I've they had like they had Guns and Roses and Wolfgang Van Halen last year, and they've had Jimmy Buffett in the past. They they have a little bit of everything, and um, it, it's it's just really fun, you know. And it's uh, beer capital of the world, so <laughs> there's just uh, tis it is, and uh, and you can get some bratwurst there, uh, so it's a uh, it's it's really a blast if, if you haven't gone i highly recommend it right good stuff so yeah yep are we done did we talk everyone's ears off i i think we did uh and you know once we get uh get our, our way of communicating let us know what you think um and uh and, and you know again our our goal our stated goal is to suck less every episode 
So we're working hopefully on that. we're accomplishing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we're good. All right. Thank All you. Right, well, yeah, this was fun. <laughs>